1: Five, four, three, two, one. There is another world that awaits, far beyond what we can see and feel. A place that's anything but ordinary, somewhere between abnormal and... We go go, go. with Jeremy Scott. Has the U.S. government become aware of actual evidence of extraterrestrial or otherwise unexplained forms of intelligence? And if so, when do you think this first occurred? Uh, I like to use the term non-human. I don't like to denote origin. Keeps the aperture open, both scientifically. Uh, uh, Certainly, uh, like I've discussed publicly uh, previously, nineteen thirties.
2: From today's UAP hearing, this is Representative Tim Burchett questioning whistleblower David Grush.
1: Okay. Can you give me the names and titles of the people with direct firsthand knowledge uh, and access to some of this crash retrieval, some of these crash retrieval programs, and maybe which facilities, military bases uh, that would the recovered material would be in? And I know a lot of Congress have talked about we're going to go to Area 51 and, you know, and... and There's nothing there anymore anyway. It's just, you know, and we move like a glacier. As soon as we announce it, I'm sure the moving vans would pull up, but please. Uh, I can't discuss that publicly, but I did provide that information both to the intel committees and the Inspector General. In case it hasn't
2: hit you until now, this was a monumental day because today, on July 26th, 2023, on the official government record, the public learned, some of them for the very first time, that efforts have taken place to cover up the reality of unidentified flying objects, now known as unidentified anomalous phenomenon, along with the possible retrieval of craft, uh, crashed objects, and perhaps the possession of alien bodies, which was what was being alluded to there by Representative Burchett in his questioning to Mr. Grush. He knows what he can speak about publicly and what he can't speak about publicly, but we can be sure that what's happening behind closed doors is just as eye-opening for those in the know as today's proceedings are for the majority of those tuning in who were not aware of this reality before today. Now, personally, from the hundreds of hours of research material that I've read, there's really nothing too shocking about these allegations. This is all stuff that has been talked about. I've read this stuff in books. I've seen it on television programs. I've heard it from abductees and from experiencers for decades. But the fact that it is now being talked about on such a grand stage is um, absolutely a monumental day and age to be living in. And... I believe believe that this is the case, that there are UAPs, as they're being called, in our airspace that we don't have the answers to, and from time to time, those objects may have been involved in some sort of crash. And if that was the case, which there's evidence of that, perhaps piloted by extraterrestrials who may or may not have survived the impact. But that's my opinion, and I'm entitled to it. I think that there is overwhelming evidence. And for some, there will be nothing that will sway their opinion on this topic either way. Either you've made up your mind that it exists. And no amount of information will lead you to believe that there's been misinformation or disinformation or any hoaxing going on. On the complete opposite, if your mind is closed and you think that these individuals are just the tinfoil hat crowd, there's no amount of evidence that's going to get you to change your mind. But this is not a political issue, this is a bipartisan issue. There are people on both sides of this who uh, want the same thing, and that is the truth. Because what was once thought to be something only that the tinfoil hat crowd discussed is now seeing the light of day. In serious proceedings, mind you, on the record, in the United States Congress, not behind closed doors, but in front of the entire world world. To witness. But up until this point. The experiencers had been kept out of the conversation. And that. Changed today. With Ryan Graves. David Grush. And David Fravor. Men who all served. This country and in doing so. Saw what they should not have. And today they told the world about it under oath. And for that. I'm eternally grateful to those men. At the opportunity to look into the eyes of David Fravor out in McMinnville, Oregon at the UFO Fest put on by McMinnimins a couple of years ago. Guys, a very, very smart man. Does that mean that I can vouch for him? No, but that's my personal observation. And I believe that these men are exactly telling the truth of what they witnessed. And I do believe that they have the evidence for which they discuss. It just can't be brought out into the limelight for national security reasons or whatnot. But much like experiencers being excluded up to this point, which has been one of my criticisms of the proceedings, because the two previous hearings... uh. And even in throwing in the NASA study group, that was all elementary discussion, very basic stuff. And it appeared that those doing the questioning weren't really in the know in order to ask intelligent or advanced questions. This is a complex subject, so I know that always asking an intelligent question, if you're not familiar with the intricacies, of the UFO and the abduction phenomenon. Then you may not think to ask that. But much like those experiencers being excluded. So are alien abductions really from the discussion of UFOs. Many times there's a connection made between them. But many times it's just well I saw lights in the sky. Or I saw a craft. And there's no mention of. ...of alien beings. But this is something that has been widely reported... ...and tirelessly researched for decades... ...is the alien abduction phenomenon. Because abductees say that they are often taken... ...against their will. They're experimented on... ...and oftentimes provided some knowledge... ...maybe from the greys... ...or from other beings that they encounter. Tonight we welcome a man who has served his country much like the individuals who testified today. His name is Robert Treat, and he identifies as a serial alien abductee. That is, he has been abducted by non-human entities throughout his life. He says his first abduction experience occurred at age four and a half, and the abductions continued regularly until he was 14. After enlisting in the U.S. Navy, he was tested for paranormal abilities and subsequently recruited out of the Navy and into a program with another agency before being recruited as an agent for the CIA. His career as a contractor for the agency took him to many interesting places, and he worked on many interesting projects as well with special access. But after a potentially terminally uh, ill diagnosis due to a heart condition, He has made the courageous decision to come forward and tell of his experiences. He's never done so before until tonight on this stage, and I'm so honored to have Robert Treat with us. But I want to read first part of a letter that he provided to us to preface our conversation with tonight that I couldn't not include, and this is not the whole thing. But he said many things very, very well that I'd like to share with you. He says, thanks to a huge outpouring of support, I was able to have a high-risk surgery, which has prolonged my life and granted me the time to not only write the first book, but will also give me time in which to complete the series. This story will shatter, shatter everything you think you know about the structure of reality and our place in the universe. He writes, Due to the nature of my career, I have not had the luxury of telling my story or sharing my experiences with others until now. Robert Treat, thank you so much for your courage to come forward.
3: Well, thanks for having me.
2: It's my pleasure. Uh, I'm guessing this has not been an easy thing for you to do?
3: No, it was... um you know, very nerve wracking, you know, it's still nerve wracking to, you know, come forward on such a controversial issue. Um, And also in writing the book and having to replay those memories and write them down, um, really brought back a lot of the, you know, the feelings um, that I was going through at the time about all those experiences. And it's those that I largely want to share. You know, not only about the existence of these beings, but, you know, what it's really like um, when you interact with them. Um, There's so much disinformation out there. And I know a lot of people have their own experiences and they unfold in in their own unique way, um, exclusive to that person. You know, how you react both mentally and emotionally in that moment um, is different for everyone. And, uh, you know, I've heard, several people's stories over the past few months about, you know, how their experiences were so horrific and nightmarish. And mine just weren't. And I think it's maybe because of um, the nature of how they began for me that um, changed how I not only experienced, but interacted with these creatures.
2: So, Robert, give us an idea of what kinds of experiences you had. And these started, you know, relatively young in life, but they continued for many years.
3: Yeah, uh, the first one that I remember clearly was when I was four and a half. Um, I have a vague memory of when I was two in Norway. Um, And it's just a fragment, one little fragment. Um, I remember I was, this is when I was two years old. We were living in Norway. And I was standing outside, just outside our back door on a small wooden wooden porch. Um, and our house was right on the edge of a valley. And I remember seeing a light coming through the trees. And I was watching the light intently. And the next moment to me, I was back in the kitchen being yelled at my mother. Um, she was screaming at me, where the hell have you been? How dare you run? I just, and I could not understand what on earth she was yelling at me about. Um,
2: because you didn't think you'd been gone that long?
3: No, no. I mean, it was literally maybe, you know, two or three minutes.
2: Yeah, classic case of missing time with the alien abductions of Robert Treat. We're just getting underway. I'm Jeremy Scott. Somewhere between abnormal and paranormal will be... Back.
1: Into the
2: Paranormal. Jeremy Scott, this is Into the Parabnormal, and I'm talking with Robert Treat about his life of alien abduction experiences, an often forgotten part of the whole UFO phenomenon. In this case, Robert, as a child, saw a light coming through the trees. The next thing he knows, he's home. He's late for dinner. Mom's yelling at him. Uh, and uh, how much time do they think you were gone, Robert?
3: I, I, it's hard to say. I think she was, like, saying it was somewhere around 20, 30 minutes. Um, you know, I remember everything about that room, you know, the carpet, the sink, the back door, and I'm staring at the back door when she's yelling at me, and I'm just, you know, just confused why she's why she's yelling at me. Um, and I, I'm estimating maybe about 20 minutes, but I'm only two years old, so I don't have much of a concept of time yet. You know, um, but I you, mean
2: that that that's a relatively short time in in the overall scheme of things. Uh, did you were you able to talk to your mother about that and and get a sense of if if it was maybe longer than that?
3: I don't know. That's the only memory fragment I have of that period. Um, the the first real memory I have. Um which brought everything home was when I was four and a half, you know, two and a half years later in Aberdeen, Scotland. And um, I remember every single detail about that experience. um, How long it was.
2: Regression or something in order to bring these memories back.
3: No, I didn't need it. I've always had complete recall. Um, A lot of people just say they were, they were wiped or had their memories removed. I, I never had that. And I think it was, probably the nature of how that abduction unfolded that allowed me to to keep my memories.
2: Interesting. Okay. So you're now four and a half years old and what happened?
3: (laughs) We were living in Aberdeen and we've been living in Kenya prior to that. And, um, I'd contracted malaria. Um, when I was, you know, around three, three and a half years old, I almost died from that. And, um, we'd moved from, uh, from Kenya to Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, my father was an oil driller, so we always went where the oil was. And we had a small apartment, you know what, we call, what we, they called a flat um, in the old part of Aberdeen. Um, I remember every detail about that flat. And um, you, know, you go into the front door, you go upstairs, and then the flat was upstairs. And um, you know, I remember being called out by my adopted father. Um, I came to call him Jay. I never called him dad after this event. He called me out of my room and I stepped into the hallway. And within seconds of stepping into the hallway, I was grabbed from behind by three of these creatures. Two of them had a hold of me and there was a third one there. And um, when I turned to look at what grabbed me, my back was to the stairs. And when I turned to look at what had grabbed a hold of me, I could see where the stairs were supposed to be, but there weren't stairs there. There was something else there. Um, And they began dragging me down the hallway. And I slipped away. They had a hold of my shoulders. And I managed to slip away and dive forward, and they caught me by the ankles. And they were dragging me down the hallway by my ankles. And I looked up, and my adopted father was standing there watching it happen. And um up to that moment I was screaming and grabbing a hold of the the table leg that was in the hallway and um, just throwing a fit but when I saw him standing there watching it happen I just surrendered to the entire experience I let go I quit screaming and yelling and they just drug me down
2: did you think that he was maybe endorsing it in some way
3: Uh, in retrospect yes I absolutely do but in the moment all I felt was betrayal
2: and we gotta take a break we'll continue the story Robert Treat, my guest tonight. Gray Area on Into the Parabnormal. I'm Jeremy Scott.
1: This is Paranormal News. The Perseid meteor shower is underway, one of the brightest cosmic events of the year. For the next month, we'll be treated to a show as Earth passes through the densest part of the trail from the 16-mile-wide comet Swift-Tuttle. Debris from the comet will put on a beautiful display as it burns up in our atmosphere. This year's show is predicted to peak on the night of August 13th. If the skies are clear in the northern hemisphere, and you can find a spot free of smog and light pollution, up to... 60 to 70 shooting stars per hour could be seen. The best time to catch a glimpse is in the early pre-dawn hours. The meteor shower gets its name because the tails of the meteors all seem to point to the constellation Perseus. George Henry, Paranormal News.
3: I was
2: sitting on this what looks like an autopsy table.
1: A man's semen is his version of a woman's egg. And I had that taken from my body un- involuntarily. And I am haunted to this day by wondering what happened to it. Standing in front of me was this slimy two-legged creature with these wide lizard-like eyes across its face. They look
3: like aliens to so
1: us. 100% they're human.
3: I remember, um...
1: A light hitting me in the forehead, um, aliens in my room being lifted up into a spaceship. He got a good look at one of the creatures, he said, a greenish-grayish being with large eyes and long legs. The creatures that I have seen mostly have been the the grays, usually about three to four foot tall. Real big almond-shaped black eyes. You're traveling at the speed of light. Into the the Parabnormal.
2: It's that gray area that we discuss. Here somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott with the author of Gray Skies, My Life with the Grays. His name, Robert Treat. An abduction experience of being dragged by his ankles down a hallway screaming, at four and a half years old, and then what happened, Robert?
3: Well, I'm i actually face down on the carpet, right? And, and you know, grabbing whatever I can, digging my nails into the carpet, and I grabbed—I remember grabbing a hold of this table leg like of this whole table, and I, I remember the sound of things falling off the table. And um, when I looked up, there was Jay, my adopted father, just watching this whole thing unfold. And when my eyes met his, I stopped screaming, I stopped grabbing at things, and I just let them drag me down the hall. All I was feeling in that moment was an overwhelming sense of betrayal. I mean, If, if I would have known swear words at that age, I probably would have used them, but not about the experience, more at him. And it was that feeling of betrayal, I stopped feeling any form of fear. I wasn't afraid anymore. And um, I just let myself be dragged. And what I'd noticed from from that position, you know, faced on the floor, you don't see very much. But what I could see was that where the stairs were supposed to be, there weren't stairs anymore. It was replaced by a white hallway, like you would imagine a hallway in like a hospital, you know, um, brightly lit, very clean, nothing in it. And at the end of that hallway. I found myself being taken, being dragged into this room, and placed on this um, thing that was reminiscent to me at the time. So, of are like you still thinking? You're
2: in. You're at home, or are you on some craft, or what?
3: I'm fully aware of what's going on. That I am being taken from my home, um, but I have, I had no exposure to science fiction or to aliens or to any of that. I knew that they weren't human. Um but I didn't think they were alien either. You know, that realization didn't come until later when I started being exposed to, you know, the, the concept of extraterrestrials, you know, really what I thought they were at the time was more akin to, because this is Scotland, you know, in, in the 1970s, um, it was more akin to what we called fairy folk, you know, like elves and dwarves and, you know, fairies, right. Which is what I kind of thought they were. And, um, when I found myself face-to-face with them, they were small. They were not a whole lot taller than me. But behind the little ones were two larger ones, more about the size of my, my father. So, he was about 5'10". So, you know, looking at like, you know, five foot 6'2", somewhere in that area was, were the taller ones. Um, and I wasn't afraid anymore. I was just watching them. And... Um, <clears throat> I remember saying to the smaller ones that had actually taken me and placed me on this, you know, exam couch, this bench. um, I asked that, I said, are you going to hurt me? And they said, yes. And the thought in my head, which is as clear now as it was then, is at least they didn't lie. Um, And I was okay with them doing whatever they wanted to do to me in that moment. I wasn't afraid. You know, they told me I was going to get hurt and I didn't have a problem with that. I'd been hurt many times before. You know, I wasn't afraid of that. And, uh, you know, they they did their little procedure. There was nothing sexual involved. They, uh, they opened my mouth and I felt a pressure on the roof of my mouth. It hurt quite a lot. And within a few seconds of that starting, I felt, an excruciating pain at the top of my skull, right in the back of my head, like like where your hair kind of spirals out from, right in that area. There's a, a huge pressure, and I could hear a crunching noise in my ears. And it felt like my eyes were going to pop out of my skull. It, it, it hurt a lot. And it, it was over within just 15, 20 seconds. It was very, very quick. And one of the tall ones walked over to me and placed his face close to mine, And all the pain disappeared. And I knew that, um, yes, they hurt me, but they also took away the pain immediately. And, um, you know, I'm still not, you know, I don't know that they're aliens. I don't know what they are. Um, Would you say that they're they're non-human? They're definitely not human. Absolutely not human. Um, But the way they treated me, I had a very, you know, rapid sense of trust with them.
2: Why did you trust them? Had they given you they, reason to? Because
3: uh, because they didn't lie to me. They they you know they were honest about the fact they were going to hurt me. And when they were done doing what they had to do, they took away the pain. And that was more than I'd ever been given by anybody else. Wow! In my short little life, at that point.
2: Was a guarantee of something.
3: Yeah. They they you know they cared enough not to let me suffer.
2: It, they brought you back eventually?
3: Yeah. Um, and this is where. The surrealness all begins. And I think. All of the. Uh, people who experience these kind of abductions. Whether they're nightmarish. Or whether they're good experiences. Is. Um, I found myself waking up in my own bed. The next morning and wasn't sure if that had really happened or not and it wasn't until i walked out into the hallway and i saw the table tipped over on the floor that i knew that it really did happen but you know when you when you come to after the experience you don't know if you know it was like is that real or was that a dream and um You know, it's not until you start discovering the physical after effects of the experience that you start becoming more and more certain that that really happened to you.
2: You say uh, after effects. Uh, So were you not necessarily injured in a sense that you could physically see anything? Uh, Maybe these were internal injuries, emotional injuries. Uh, What do you mean by that?
3: Well, the roof of my mouth hurt next morning. The roof of my mouth hurt. I had a funny smell in my nose um, and it was everywhere I went. <laughs> so um, I, I came to conclude that it was actually the smell was in my head, not outside. Um, there was the table knocked over in the hallway. I remembered I remembered grabbing a hold of that and knocking it over. Um, and then I had an itch on the back of my head itched. And when I went to scratch it, I, I picked a scab off the top of my head and it started bleeding again. So all of those physical after effects were consistent with, you know, the reality that I wasn't sure had or hadn't happened.
2: Robert, were you able to communicate at least on a mental level with these beings?
3: Later, yes. Now, when I when I asked, are you going to hurt me? I spoke what I what I was sure I was speaking out loud. But the more I thought about it later, my mouth—I I don't think I was making a noise, but they were clearly communicating with me in my head,
2: telepathically.
3: Um, yes, and in the abductions that came later, you know, I, I can describe those events much more clearly. You know, when they communicate with you, it, it is telepathic. They, are, you know, they are capable of speech, but it's not a sound that you would want to hear, and it's not a sound that you're capable of understanding anyway. You know, it's like. You know, if if an ancient Egyptian popped into the present through his time machine and started speaking, you know, in ancient Egyptian, it wouldn't mean anything to you. But when they communicate with you in your head, now what I experienced would would be, you know, I would call it a flash, but it wasn't a flash of light. It was more like a flash of electricity, you know, kind of uh, like how you would imagine if somebody put like a defibrillator paddle on your head and zapped your brain, um, you'd feel that, I would feel that flash, and then I would see a symbol, then I would see a, an image of what they were trying to communicate, and then I would hear the word in my own language, but in my own head voice. So say for example, they were trying to say hamburger, right? You would see a symbol, you'd feel a flash, you would see a symbol in your head, you would see a picture of a hamburger, and you would hear hamburger. And that's kind of how the communication unfolds. And when you communicate back with them, um, in their realm, and I'll clarify that later, what I mean by their realm, because i don't I don't think that when they take you, I think they, they take they snatch you completely out of this reality, right mm-hmm. or what we believe reality is. Um, that you're you're talking and you think initially you think your lips are moving, but there's no words coming out. There's no sound actually emanating from you. It's just in your head. And then the communication comes back into your head. And this is also part of the whole surrealness, you know, because the communication is nonverbal and you hear your words and their responses, both in your own head voice. It's almost like you're talking to yourself, but you only have 50% of the control of the conversation. I don't know if I'm describing that accurately. You mean, well, but that's really what it's like it's like talking to yourself but there's two of you
2: talk about voices in the head uh that gives it a a whole new meaning uh robert did you feel that you had like say a download experience where information uh through your abductions or or maybe afterwards uh was was almost downloaded or implanted into your brain like things that you you didn't know that now suddenly you're in the know.
3: Yeah, and that that comes later after several encounters. Or I don't like to call them abductions because I never felt abducted. I never felt kidnapped. I never felt like it was really. I mean, it was against my will, as in as. Would
2: insofar you, uh, as I, I care control. to return
3: that for us? Would I care to return there?
2: No, to get a, give that a different term uh, or rename, I guess I should say. Is there a, a better name that you prefer besides abduction?
3: I haven't really, I haven't found an adequate way of expressing it. Um, I mean, you are taken against your will in so far as you don't have control over when it happens or how it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, it just felt like I was being, you know, like like your little friends come and knock on your window or throw rocks at your window. and like, come on, let's go play. That's more what it felt like to me. Yeah.
2: How do you think that they were able to heal your pain just like that?
3: Just something in their abilities. They can just, they can take away um, physical suffering. They can take away emotions, fear. And there's, when you're in their world, their reality, um, or whatever you want to call it, I came to notice that there's things you feel and that there's things you don't. Like in um
2: Almost like a numbing we, of so- sorts.
3: It's like it just does not exist there. You know? Um like they don't experience fear. And when you're in their when you're in their world, um, or when I was, you know, in their world, I didn't feel um I didn't feel fear. I didn't I don't remember ever feeling hungry um you don't feel separated from others you know the way we feel here like we're all individuals and there's there's this wall between each of us that doesn't really exist and there with them it's and maybe it's because of the the telepathic nature of their communication and there's so much more that's conveyed within that communication than just language than, than just information it's like All of the barriers between you and another creature are completely removed.
2: We're only getting underway with the abduction stories of Robert Treat. This continues to happen to him. We'll have more of our program right after this. Into the Paranormal. Life of abductions tonight, telling us the story is Robert Treat and his book, which is available now, Gray Skies, My Life with the Grays. All right. So I mentioned that this continued to Robert. Uh, When was the next abduction?
3: The next one, it wasn't really an abduction. It was more of a meeting. I'd met them in a park not far from that little flat we lived in, and um, the strange thing is, I felt them before I before I said I knew they were there, and um, I felt them in the park. And this park had a large, a big stone wall around it, like a lot of the you know neighborhood parks in in Aberdeen um, did. And um, I was walking down the street. I was actually on my way to this little shop, and um, I could feel them on the other side of that wall. So I walked around where the gate was went into the park and um i went to the area where where you know i felt that they were going to be and um you know it was just it was just a brief encounter and um it was more of, that one was more of an emotional communication like they could pick up on the way i was feeling and their communication back to me was also more of a feeling um but I was hungry. I mean, I wasn't fed as a child. I was—I I left the parts of my childhood abuse out of the book because I just didn't really want that to be infecting the story. Um, but I was hungry. I was a hungry little kid. And what I was hoping to do was that sometime between the time I left our flat and the time I arrived at this little corner shop, um, that f- food would somehow come my way. And this emotional communication was, everything's going to be okay. You're going to be able to eat today. And that encounter was maybe only about, you know, 10 minutes. And right when I walked out of the park, there was a big shiny coin right there on the ground. And I picked up the coin. I didn't know what it was worth. I didn't even know what it was. Um, But I was so happy and I knew that it was them. I just felt it was them that put me in that place at that time. Like, if I would have continued walking down there in my own pace, that I would have missed it. That it was a coin that was dropped between the time I felt them and the time I hit that part of the pavement. You know what I mean? Like, if I would have kept walking on my own and, and not gone into the park, that I would have been kind of ahead of the flow in time and that coin would have been dropped behind me and I never would have found it. So I just had this feeling that that they had interrupted my journey so that that event would happen. Does that it make was sense? as if
2: they were looking after you.
3: Yes, yes, exactly. And I, I was so happy and I just skipped across the road and down and down the pavement to the corner shop. And and I learned that it was a 50 pence piece and that was, you know, quite a bit of money to me. And in that time,
2: what'd you get um, to eat?
3: Oh, well, I got a pie and, uh, um, uh, a little bottle of milk and uh, a couple of little candies, which was just a, a huge thing for me. And these types of things happened a few times. Um, and by the time of my fifth birthday, I could really feel them coming like, you know, hours, like even, though, even the morning I would wake up, I knew I was going to see them that evening and it would become something I would look forward to. But I still thought of them as, as, you know, as fairies, like, you know, like pucks or fairies or elves, right? And um, they, it became my own personal magical little experience. I just thought it was exactly what I thought it was. It was it was a, a kind of magic, magical thing.
2: So, Robert, when you say see them, are you always talking about, like, physical flesh and blood? Like, uh, I'm seeing, I could, you know, see you, you know, if we were in the same room together?
3: Uh, yes. And they would, um, I hadn't seen a ship at this point. They would always, um, when I would see them, it was, they would step, it was like they would step into our reality from another place. You know, they would just appear, but it would be like they were stepping through an invisible door into our world and that they would leave the same way.
2: And how often did this happen during your childhood, Robert?
3: Every few weeks and there, you know there were times when it went you know several months between and you know dude, the longer it went the lonelier I felt you know for them um, I would start to miss them but you know it was um it was fairly it was fairly regular
2: my guest is Robert Treat Gray Skies My Life with the Grays is his book and we'll have more of our program on into the Parabnormal. I'm Jeremy Scott.
1: Into the pair of normal store is open show off our brand with all sorts of items in the store at pairofnormalradio.com Space, you never know where you'll land. We can guarantee it will be into the paranormal.
2: Can you imagine a life of contact experiences, whether or not they're abductions, uh, physical abductions every time, or communications? That's the life of Robert Treat as we're hearing about tonight. His website is com, and his book, Gray Skies, My Life with the Grays. Our phone number in the United States and Alaska to join the program is 503-506-0396. That's 503-506-0396 or anywhere in the world on Skype at ITP51. So I was asking... Robert, how often this happens, Uh, I believe you said uh, every few
3: weeks, right? Yeah, every few weeks, sometimes every few days. Um, And bear in mind, you know, this started when I'm just a a little bit, this was the summer before my fifth birthday. And, uh, you know, my birthday is in the middle of December. Um, So as long as it was every few days, every few weeks. But there were maybe about half a dozen of these types of encounters You know, between the time it began and uh, my fifth birthday, which is really the moment – it was my fifth birthday where everything began to accelerate and and the nature of the contact began to change dramatically. Okay.
2: So, I mean, we could say that as a child – You know, it could just be uh, an overactive imagination that maybe you dreamt this or whatever the case happens to be because, you know, kids do say the darndest things. But then as time goes on and you get older, as you mentioned, the nature of the contact changes and your memories become more clear, right? Yes. And so so how did the contact then change?
3: was uh, my fifth fifth birthday when I uh, it was the first time I encountered you, you know the, the the quintessential typical you know light you know that people describe um and it began earlier that day I had a feeling that they were nearby um it was um I was sitting there as my very first birthday cake I'd ever had and, and I was sitting there and they put me on a piano stool at the end of the table I didn't realize that it didn't have a back or forgot it didn't have a back, and I leaned backwards and I fell backwards off of this piano stool, but I didn't hit the ground. Something caught me and lifted me back up. and by this point, I'd kind of discovered or heard somewhere about the concept of guardian angels, so I was starting to think of them that way now, you know, by my fifth birthday, I was thinking of them as angels, you know um, but it was that night that um We'd moved into, uh, my dad had remarried, it all happened very quickly, um, which I learned later that he'd met her a long time before, and this was all planned, but, you know, he was already married by the time we moved to Scotland, the time he moved me there, and um, shortly before my fifth birthday, we moved into my new stepmother's house, her, her parents' house, my new grandparents', this uh, big house on the banks of the River Dee in, in Aberdeen, and uh, my new room was um this creepy, sparsely furnished room um, on the second floor of the house. and uh, I had started seeing other beings. I didn't know what they were yet. I would come to learn later that uh, you know these are what people call ghosts or spirits of you know deceased people and um yeah, this had been going on for you know quite a few nights of these these ghosts going through back and forth through that through my room all night long, all night long. And the night of my fifth birthday was this intense light blasted through my bedroom window. And I had gone up to rushed up to the window to see what it was. And I couldn't see anything but light. It was just intensely bright, but it wasn't blinding light. You could still see clearly without squinting. And that's when I heard just a voice. I didn't see any any being, but I knew it was them. Um, you know the the aliens who I thought it was angels by this point. Um, and I'd asked them. I said, you know, who are? Well, first, I said, who are you? Just to confirm, I couldn't see what being was was there, but I knew something was there. I said, who are you? And it gave me a reply. And I then asked, well, who are they? you know, indicating like who were these other things walking in and out of my room all night long. Um, and uh, the voice told me that if I leave the house and I turn left and go up the hill, that those other things in my room came from up the hill. Um, so that next morning I had, you know, snuck out of the house and I had gone up the hill. And what I found up at the top of the hill was a huge war cemetery from World War One and World War Two, all soldiers' graves. And um you know, the voice told me that, that those ones in my room came from there. And, dead people you know, I, from I learned, the cemetery. Yeah, that these the dead were coming from the cemetery coming towards me. You know, and there's things that you don't know at five years old or four years old, but you come to realize later. And what I realized, you know, much later in life is that, you know, once you're touched, you know, by, you know, a paranormal event, that all of that opens up to you. You know, so I started not only encountering these these beings, you know, these these aliens, right? um, But I started seeing... You know the spirits of the dead as well
2: interesting uh and you could d- differentiate between the two because one was uh, more uh, physical form uh, the other a uh, more uh what ghostly form
3: Excuse me. yeah they were they were um shadows translucent but they were clearly human right? they were the, the these Ghosts were very different than these you know other beings right um didn't look the same you know, I just knew that they weren't the same thing and uh, you know I could tell that the those other entities were the ghosts they they were very human looking, is what I'm trying to say
2: mm-hmm. so w- when did you see the ship for the first time?
3: The ship for the first time was several months later um I had discovered this, uh, my you know, new grandparents' house, my grandmother had what was, what they called a secret garden. It was a walled garden, right? You know, at the, at the end of, um, at the end of the yard, there was like a square, like a, a square, um, area that was, that was walled in, you know, about 10, 12 foot high walls with a wooden door. And it was absolutely forbidden from going in there, but I'd started going in there and I would actually meet my, you know, um, you know, little angel friends, you know, um, light people in the secret garden. Well, one night I was drawn outside, drawn out of my room, you know, to go down there and I, and I thought I was going to meet them. The first time I saw a ship was actually over the neighbor's house. So standing at the back door of my grandmother's house, looking towards the secret garden and the neighbors to the right, right above, the, the, her yard was fully walled in as well. Above the wall, I could see a huge black disc-shaped shadow. I I didn't know enough to call it a ship, but I knew that this was something very different. So I was, you know, it was probably maybe around March or April of that year.
2: And then did it uh, just fly away or did it like blink out or how did it not be
3: there? it wasn't lit up at all. It was just a, a, like a black shadow, almost like a hole in the sky. And it just, so it
2: just evaporated.
3: No, it just kind of like disappeared out of sight up into the air. Quiet as the grave.
2: So no sound, no sound. Was there a structure to it?
3: It was definitely solid. Um, But when you see something unlit, you know, kind of, you know, a dark object against a dark sky on a moonless night, there was no sense of um, dimension to it. Mm-hmm.
2: So, were you ever taken on a ship?
3: Yeah, and that you know that came several years later. Um, living in a different town, farther up north, and um, you know I'd found a little, you know, another little secret area. Like I was always looking for little secret areas to get away from people, hiding spots. Um, yeah. And um, underneath this this old railway bridge, this old Roman bridge, um, was an area that was that was fenced in with another door in it. And um, when I stepped through there, I thought I was like in, in you know this other um, other land kind of. But through that door, there was just it was, just, was a series of pastures and a dirt roads, and the pasture was surrounded by this uh, single wire fence. And that was the first time I was, I was actually taken into to a ship. And I was about nine years old when that happened, and um, that were was. Were you lifted
2: really... up some somehow, or you just uh, were not there one moment my... and then there in the next moment?
3: I saw the ship come in, and by this point, you know, I, I was clearly aware of what a ship was i knew that they were you know now you know what they called aliens extraterrestrials i had had exposure to you know comic books and other things so i now had frames of reference for these things before that i had no frames of reference it was just you know um what i gathered in bits and pieces from folklore but now i now knew what that thing was it was a ship and um it came in silently you know and the bottom of it was lit. Just, you know, by this time I'd you know I'd seen him a few times. And in this one, it was, it was lit, a very small, like an inverted dome. And the entire bottom of it was was lit up, glowing like a pale blue white. And um the beam of light came down maybe about you know 10, 15 feet in front of me. It didn't hit me directly, right? It came down in front of me and just stayed there almost like inviting me into it. And when I stepped, but what I noticed was the beam of light didn't hit the ground. Right? It wasn't illuminated, it wasn't like a spotlight that came up and lit the ground. It was like the light came down and just trunked off a few inches above the ground. And when I stepped into the light, it pulled me up onto the same level of where it trunked off. So my feet weren't touching the ground. And it had this warm, um, warm feel to it, like. The light had a had a structure, almost like perfect water. You know, when you when you get into water, it's just the perfect temperature, and you can just barely feel it on your skin. You know, like the perfectly warm swimming pool. And it, you know, there were sparkles of light into it, and that's when it pulled me up. Um, but I noticed I was the only thing being pulled up. Right, this was this was a pasture. Right, there were all kinds of things on the ground, including cow poo. Right. And I'm the only one that's, I'm the only thing that's being pulled up into it. But the surreal part about being taken up in that light was you would kind of expect when you go up into the light from the outside into the ship, that there would be some sort of transition, like going up into an elevator where you pass between the floor, you know. Um, but there was no transition. One moment you're in the light and the next minute you're inside.
2: Would you say, like, uh, teleported?
3: No, it's, it's almost... <laughs> All
2: right, we'll let you tell us what it was like when we come back. We're at a break point with Robert Treat, and we'll continue after this Into the paranormal. Imagine uh, here one moment and uh, in a craft surrounded by E.T.'s, the next. I'm Jeremy Scott. This is Into the Parabnormal. Tonight's episode is definitely in that gray area. Talking with the author of Gray Skies, My Life with the Grays, a serial alien abductee, Robert Treat. So, we were talking about how you get inside the craft. And uh, I had asked you if it was kind of like teleportation, and you were about ready to tell us what it's like,
3: yeah. I mean, you you've heard the expression. if you blink, you miss it.' it's, oh, it's, yes. it's like that, but it's like a blink in, it's like a blink in existence or a blink in reality. One minute you're in one minute you're here, the next the next blink, you're there. You don't feel any sense of transition at all. like. You have all the experience leading up to the time from your outside right up to the edge of the craft, and then there's just like a blink in reality. And and you're now in their world. The oddest thing I found about going onto their ship was whether they took me into a ship or whether they took me through a portal, or whether it was what you know people refer to as a psychic abduction, where you know you go to sleep you have an experience and you wake up and you're not sure if it's a dream or 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 real it doesn't matter which form the abduction takes right whether it's through a portal through a light onto a ship i always found myself in the same room so you know later as i got older and older you know i really came to believe that whatever is inside of the sh- whatever space exists inside of the ship is it's almost it's not our reality it's not our universe it's like we're taken out of space and time as we know it into their version of space and time and you return the same way because there's no transition in the return either
2: and so robert eventually these abduction experiences stopped
3: they stopped they they continued and they they um accelerated and decelerated you know right up until um i was 14 years old and that was kind of like the peak of puberty and i've always wondered if puberty had some effect on you know why it stopped but another another event that happened when i was 14 was we left scotland and we moved to the united states and once here in america it wasn't the same It, uh, um, I would have, you know, I would dream about them and, and I would continue to have the, uh, the mental or the psychic connection to them. But, you know, being with them physically stopped at that point.
2: And so why you why do you think this happened to you?
3: Well, there was one event. I mean, it happened several times, but one very landmark event. Um, when I was about 12 years old, where I was taken before, um, have you heard people talk about what they call the mantids? Uh-huh. They're very, they're very large, you know, grays. Um, I was taken before one of those and a lot of people described it as a terrifying experience. For me, it wasn't, I was awestruck by this creature. I mean, completely awestruck. Um, to me, it was like meeting God. And what I, when you've had communication with them for a while, it becomes a two way thing. It's like your mind opens to them and their mind opens to you. And um, you can draw information and knowledge out of them the same way that they do you. It's very much a a river flowing in two ways. What I learned from them was that they, that their purpose, at least this particular sect of, of grays, what they were here for is they are studying and tracking The migration of particular souls from life to life and from world to world.
2: We'll finish that thought with Robert Treat. Somewhere between abnormal and paranormal, I'm Jeremy Scott into the Paranormal. got somewhere between abnormal and paranormal, returning to our conversation with the uh, alien abductee, Robert Treat, Hope. author of Gray Skies, My Life with the Greys. His website is com. Right before the break, he was talking about being tracked. Uh, these beings have uh, told you that they're interested in us or what?
3: they're interested in us and i learned what i know i learned the reason why now you have to bear in mind that when they communicate with you it's an alien species communicating with a human so and it, because it's telepathic that the information they're trying to relay to to me or to anybody you can only decode as much of it as you have the vocabulary to understand so a lot of it doesn't decode and you don't understand until Later, as you grow older, when you do have the vocabulary to understand what was there, but it's like in your head forever. Once they put it there, it's always there. But what I learned from them is, one, that there was a creator race, that there's many there's many species of aliens, and we're as, a, we're, we're as alien to them as they are to us. They're not the only race in the universe. We're not the only race in the universe. But above all the races, there was a race that created all the beings in our current form of creation the same race that created us is the same race that created them and their genetic code i don't know who they are i don't even i'm not even sure if they know who they are but what they do know is that we all share the same base code dna like the little segments of code in our dna that we consider junk unusable inactive inert garbage we share all of that so there's a little bit of us and them there's a little bit of them and us but it's and the same with all the other races in this in this universe, in this paraverse. Right? We all we we were all created by the same race. Okay. Um, souls are immortal, indestructible. And the souls travel from race to race, from being to being, from life to life. Right. What they are studying is what they are, their interest in us is that the souls that are in some people here in the humans here on earth. And I came to learn and I actually saw there are humans elsewhere in the galaxy, in the universe. We're not the only humans in existence. There are other humans. Um, from what I understand, we're the only ones that were created from, from an ape base, a primate base, and that made us dangerous. So we do pose a threat in the fact that, you know, we have this lower nature in our DNA, but because we are so we are more closely aligned with the creator race. Like the way we came out was very close to the race that created everything. Right. So that we will eventually evolve, you know, over many, many millennia to have the same power as the race that created all the others. And we pose a potential threat to all of the life forms in the universe. But they are tracked with the, what this sect of grace is interested in is the soul itself, you know, how it travels, where it goes, and the experience these souls collect from life to life, from world to world, incarnation to incarnation. So they select certain individuals that are in possession of a soul that's existed somewhere else in other periods of time. Um,
2: I'm just wondering if they're interested in our demise, perhaps
3: They're interested in our in our future and our demise in insofar as they will not allow us to evolve into a threat. Right? Um, and from what I've learned is that they have called us before, and they will cull us again if necessary, that when our numbers get too great, And we are on the threshold of evolving into a higher form. If there is the slightest chance that we are going to evolve into a higher form while still possessing our lower nature, they will not let that happen.
2: Robert, this is probably going to be a tough one um, to handle. Uh, But do you think that your diagnosis uh, has anything to do with what you shared tonight? Uh, what you've shared in the book and are you holding out hope that much like they cured you of any pain that maybe they could cure you of this illness
3: i'm sure that they could if they if they wanted to they definitely have the ability and the power to do that um but really their their interest is in the soul the body doesn't matter the vessel is irrelevant not important um You know, once my soul is released from this body, it will go somewhere else, possibly be reincarnated. Maybe it'll come back as another human. Maybe it won't. Um, But the cause of my illness was not caused by them. It was entirely human agency. Um, You know, I suffered a very serious accident back in 1999 um, where I had to go through a lot of reconstructive surgeries over several years to put me back together again. And during that time, I was on... Massive, massive doses of antibiotics for many years, and uh, when you're when you take high levels of antibiotics for a very prolonged period of time, it causes loss of eyesight. Also causes arterial and vascular mm. blockages, and that's what put me in this position. Um, I'm sorry. And uh, I mean, it, it, it just is what it is. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't caused by them. They've they, they periodically they did their little experiments on me. Um, you know, nothing traumatic, you know, briefly painful, but, um,
2: Is it safe to say that you're thinking that there may be some events that are about to take place that, you know, could deceive us if we're not privy to them?
3: Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, in my adult career, I encountered other races, you know, the ones that, um, they refer to, at least you know, my I call them you know, my grays, Refer to this other sect of grays as the fallen, and it's the fallen that are interacting with the human agency. What we call you know, the elites or the cabal. And um, when the when the fallen were cast out of you know the collective, for lack of a better term, right, um, they were cut off from whatever it is was the, is the source of of their power, their knowledge. The Fallen Grays are very much trapped here on Earth, and there's a big difference between the two groups. The Fallen look degenerated; they look, you know, decaying, um, you know, like George Soros. You know, um, <laughs> if you compare George Soros to a supermodel, that's the difference between the Fallen and, you know, the Good Grays. Which you know, I I came to learn, you know, uh, we call them the Primarchs. Um, The fallen are working with the human agency here on Earth to advance our technology in order to replace the technology they've lost. And the ultimate goal is that when the other grays come back in force, you know, when it's you know time to call the numbers of humans on this planet, that the fallen intend to go to war with the other group of grays and that the humans are going to be used as cannon fodder. Right? They believe the fallen believe that with human cooperation they can defeat the other greys and the human elites believe that they will become gods themselves rulers of all humanity and humanity's diaspora across the universe um you know my personal opinion is there's not a chance that the humans and the fallen they don't even have a remotely have the capability to, to defeat the others um But what I learned through my, through my time with, um, not only the agency, but later with the order was that there is going to be a, uh, an extraterrestrial hoax, what they call a staged alien invasion. False flag. uh, It's a false flag, but it's a false flag in order to make us, in order to make us, when the good, the good graves do come. We will see them as evil. We will see them as bad, even though that is not the case. It's they're trying to put us through the looking glass to where, you know, um, we see good as evil and evil as good. And that's how they're going to manipulate us to, for humans to cooperate in the war against this other race of aliens. So they're going to, they're going to, they're going to stage stage a hoax that we will have casualties
2: to help us fight their battle. Right. Robert, I'm interested because while in the military, you did have some special access to certain programs. Did any of that happen to deal with anything we might deem paranormal or extraterrestrial or dealing with UFOs or anything of the kind? Uh, That is, if you could tell us.
3: The military is really, they're a bunch of dabblers. Um (laughs) You know the the Pentagon looking for evidence in the Pentagon looking for evidence in the government. That's not where you're going to find it. And even that guy said it day in the UFO hearings. He said, "Yes, it's both government and others. So it's it goes the others
2: above their heads.
3: It's the outside. You know the Pentagon. You know, yeah, they're, they're they're war fighters. They're they're conventional, but really, when it comes to this, they're just a bunch of boobs. They don't really know. Okay, this is why the CIA used people like me. Is one that they're prohibited by their charter from operating domestically. And a lot of these programs have to be operated domestically. So they employ what's called agents. Agents are like private citizens that work on behalf of the CIA but are not CIA employees. Um, If you work directly for the CIA, you're an officer. If you get your paycheck from the CIA, you're an officer. If you work on behalf of the CIA, right? Under a non-official cover, you are an agent. You have a case officer who is an officer of the CIA. But you're a private citizen or a private corporation. All of this is farmed out. This is where the black budget really is, and the black budget's right in your face. It will say, you know, appropriation or funding for this research, right? Um, You know, we're gonna, uh, you know, research vaccines, right? And yes, they will research a vaccine, but the vast majority of that money is going into into, you know, know, genetic research for, um, you know, manipulating human DNA um you know other things that you know they farm it off you know it's like you've heard the expression you don't really believe they pay 400 dollars for a toilet seat do you right that's how that money is cycled off but it goes into your know, private companies are doing all this research you know uh, um uh, boeing uh, northrop grumman um bigelow aerospace and even companies little tiny companies you haven't even heard of like um one of the projects i worked on was an osmium 187 Isotopic production, which had never been done, it was all theoretical. You know, we were competing against the Russians, and you know, we built this, uh, you know, base up in Deer Lodge, Montana, and we finally perfected that. You know, it's the same way we developed um, a lot of these other things, like uh, you know, like money will go to NASA. The NASA will fund a private individual. Like, let's just take, let's just take the guy Bob Lazar. You know, most UFO people have heard of Bob Lazar, right? um absolutely how he how he came forward about working out in you know area s7 and the government was like oh he's a tinfoil head you know he's full of shit blah 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 but you know to this day bob lazar works as a contractor for nasa if you go on nasa's website and you you can see a product called aerogel which you can't burn it is stronger than steel but as light as air bob lazar invented that he's the one that holds the patent so money is given to nasa by the government NASA then funds Bob Lazar's research, Bob Lazar then develops the product, and NASA claims exclusive rights to market, sell, and distribute aerogel, right? And that's how the whole thing works. It is all s- split down into private citizens, subcontracted, so it makes finding the truth as difficult as the diff- telling the difference between Nat Coop and Pepper.
2: Oh, thank you for that descriptor. Uh, I think that was crystal clear now. Um, wh- what do you make of the accounts that we heard in the UAP hearing today?
3: What I heard was 100% the truth, but it was it was sugar-coated. And I don't know if it's, you know, part of the disinformation if it's 100% sincere, and, and I do believe that the people that were giving testimony are 100% sincere. But whatever the government's motives for having those hearings at all is what I'm suspicious about. And I know for a fact that, that an alien hoax is coming. An alien, the staged alien invasion is coming. I heard it right out of the mouth of one of the Rockefellers years ago. We were at a party in, uh, in New York at the Millennium. And at the table next to me was one of the Rockefellers. I'm not going to say which one because I can't prove it and I don't want to get sued. But
2: thank you. We he's appreciate drunk that and, as well.
3: And he's drunk and he's talking to his buddies at that table. And I can hear this whole thing. He's talking loud. And bear in mind, this is before 9-11. And he's saying, Oh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna see our soldiers going into caves looking for an enemy that's not there, and then we're gonna, you know, then. we're going to see you know a takeover in venezuela and then we're going to have you know asteroids and he goes on with a few things he's telling his friends um the history of the future right the last thing he says and he says he says the end game that the 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 final event is going to be a staged alien invasion and that's why it stuck in my head was the word staged because i wondered what do you mean by staged staged as in you would stage a military operation with your landing forces and your follow-on forces and your support forces Right, or staged as in faked. And I really didn't give it too much credence at the time until a few years later, and we find ourselves in Afghanistan in a little place on the, on the Pakistani border called Tora Bora. Right?
2: Well, that thought, more with Robert Treat, somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. Into the Paranormal. Paranormal. Jeremy Scott into the paranormal. Such a pleasure to be with you yet again this week. Another monumental week in ufology. Robert Treat is my guest, a serial alien abductee, author of Grey Skies, My Life with the Greys. And Robert, please wrap up your thoughts about a conversation that you overheard stating uh, there's going to be a faked or a staged alien invasion.
3: Yeah, so um, I kind of left off, you know, we found ourselves in Tora Bora there on the um, Pakistan border. You know, we're searching through caves for an enemy that isn't there. And in the subsequent years, I've watched everything he said that night come true. But the, the important thing to remember as we go forward and this information comes out is that what they say, what you hear and what they mean are not at all the same thing. Okay. And let's use a very specific case in point. The alien, the asteroid scare, right? I interpreted much like anybody else would that you know it was going to be asteroids crashing from the sky and smashing into Earth, destroying cities and causing chaos. And there was they put out movies to that effect. Remember those, right? The real asteroid scare was that big asteroid that oblong one, the Obama Bureau or whatever it is, right? <laughs> You know, where we had that that speculation and that fear is that this asteroid might be an alien ship traveling through the galaxy, carrying hordes of hairy aliens coming to kill us all, right? That was the true scare, right? And they always float a trial balloon. They put it out there and then it comes back, much like this big oblong asteroid. You know, many years ago, we first heard about it. And then, was it earlier in this year? It's back again, right? So they always float a little bit of information. They let it die down and it comes back again. So even though I believe these witnesses, right? How it's going to be spun and portrayed out in the future, we really have to be very mindful of, like how it's going to lay out. Because if it's possible, they will deceive even the very best of us, right? I've been fooled many times, right? I thought something was going to play out a certain way and that is not at all the way it unfolded. But in retrospect, it's like, I should have seen that coming. Um, you know, like I should have seen COVID coming. I worked on projects which contained elements of, you know, COVID research. What what became COVID? I was expecting a smallpox outbreak. That's what I thought it was going to be. It was going to be a re-release of smallpox uh, because of the vaccines for smallpox wore off years ago. None of us are actually immune to it. We think we are, but we're not. So I was blindsided by the COVID nineteen. Right. So, you know, even the best of us are going to be fooled. Right. Which is why, moving forward, you know, all of us who have any kind of interest, you know, in in this information that's going to be coming out, um, you know, embrace it, take the information in, but be very skeptical about the way it unfolds, because w- what they tell you, how they tell you, and what they really mean are 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 not congruent.
2: Robert, thank you so much for your insights tonight, uh, and thank you for your. Courage as well to come forward and finally share your stories after all these years.
3: It was my pleasure, and and I appreciate you having me on.
2: My pleasure as well. Robert Treat, and uh, the book is called Gray Skies, My Life with the Greys. His website, r-o-b-t-r-e-a-t dot com. And we've got that linked up as well, in case you need any of that information. It is always in the episode page at parabnormalradio.com. Let's relive some of those highlights from today's UAP hearing.
0: Our witnesses will testify today that UAPs
1: have posed a serious safety threat, and we must understand this.
2: My name is Ryan Fobbs Graves, and I'm a former F-18 pilot with a decade of service in the U.S. Navy.
1: My name is David Charles Grush, I was an intelligence officer for 14 years. My name is David Fravor, I'm a retired commander in the United States Navy.
2: I have experienced advanced UAP firsthand, and I'm here to voice the concerns of more than 30 commercial aircrew and military veterans who have confided their similar encounters with me.
1: I was informed in the course of my official duties of a multi-decade UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program. Looked on a small saw white tic-tac object with a longitudinal axis pointing north-south and moving very abruptly over the water like a ping-pong ball. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. There were no rotors, no rotor wash, or any sign of visible control surfaces like wings. Finally, I'd like to thank these three brave witnesses here. They took an oath. They took an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, and goddammit, they're doing it. And we owe them a debt of gratitude.
2: I agree, and thank you to those men for coming forward, to David Fravor, to David Grush, and to Ryan Graves. Good night, everyone. God bless. We'll talk to you next time. Into the paranormal.
3: Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee
1: Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.